Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, Liberty Benton Superintendent Mark Kowalski gives an update on the very busy summer of construction at their campus ahead of back-to-school time. Also this morning, measures to address a changing climate are almost always framed as an economic killer, but doing nothing could destroy a significant segment of the economy as well. In today's Throwback Thursday segment this morning, back in 2016, the American College of Physicians issued a warning about the effects of climate change on public health. And happening around town, the next production of the Fort Findlay Playhouse will be the premiere of a Jim Toth original, Blood Moon Memories. We'll get a preview. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, July 28th, 2022. Today, observances include World Hepatitis Day, it is National Chili Dog Day, National Milk Chocolate Day. Have a chili dog and wash it down with a milk chocolate. Um, World Nature Conservation Day, Buffalo Soldiers Day. I think that refers to something in this. I don't think it's soldiers from Buffalo. Buffalo Soldiers Day, uh, National Water Park Day, National Intern Day. Um, I'll have our intern look up what Buffalo Soldiers Day is uh, really all about. National Refreshment Day, and it is National Soccer Day today. So, observances and reasons to celebrate on this uh, 28th day of July. So, um, the latest online challenge is really going to get someone into trouble. And we've had these viral challenges on social media, primarily TikTok over the years. Some of them are just stupid. Well, they're all kind of stupid, but some of them are particularly dangerous. This uh, is potentially illegal. It is the Kia challenge that was posted back in early July And authorities say it is causing a spike in car thefts. Uh, One TikTok user made a video of himself uh, starting his automobile, his Kia automobile, using only a USB cable. I don't know how this works. Uh, And even if I did, I would not share it because obviously this could be used for nefarious purposes. And even though the video has since been deleted, you know how it is in cyberspace. Once it's out there, it's out there permanently. The secret is out. And copycats have now been hotwiring cars to drive them off using nothing but a USB cable because apparently you can. Uh, TikTok has urged users to report content related to the Kia challenge so it can be removed but uh, and of course, grand theft is a felony in most states. I think just about all states. <laughs> so, do we really have to tell people don't steal a car just because you can? It's not a good idea. That'll get you into trouble. But man, it's it's only a matter of time before we had uh, these viral challenges that are not only dumb and dangerous but also potentially illegal. And here we have the Kia. Challenge. I don't know. If I drove a Kia, I would be, be very, um, very cautious about that. Uh, that would be a little unnerving. And apparently, you can car can be hotwired with a USB cable. That's crazy. Speaking of uh, social media, um, another lawsuit filed against the parent company of Instagram. That would be Meta, uh, claiming that the social media network fueled their child's disordered eating. Jennifer and Benjamin Martin alleged that Instagram created a perfect storm of conditions leading to their 19-year-old daughter's eating disorder. They say around in the uh, lawsuit, around 2016, we noticed some extreme weight loss in our daughter, and we put the puzzle pieces together that it was a direct correlation to social media, more specifically Instagram. Um, Mr. Martin says... Uh, his daughter was diagnosed with anorexia. The lawsuit claims she was bombarded with content featuring underweight models and eating disorder content and so on, uh, blaming the algorithm 
at uh, at Instagram. I don't think anyone is necessarily claiming that Instagram is out there deliberately uh, encouraging eating disorders or any other uh, type of malady or bad behavior or anything like that. Any more than TikTok is out there encouraging people to steal cars. But when people post content on their platform and literally millions of people post billions of pieces of content on their platform every single minute of every single day, it's impossible to keep track of it all. And um, so in the case of this lawsuit, at issue will be whether or not they can be held responsible when their algorithm uh, performs in ways that are not necessarily intended. It'll be interesting to see where that lawsuit goes uh, with respect to that uh, and uh, how it might change the experience of uh, social media moving forward. A couple of other uh, interesting stories here, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. Joey Chestnut has set a, another world record for eating. World-renowned competitive eater Joey Chestnut has broken a world record after eating 44 chicken fingers in five minutes. Apparently, this happened just after he picked up his 15th mustard belt after winning the National Hot Dog Eating Contest on July 4th. In honor of National Chicken Finger Day, he traveled to Las Vegas, Joey Chestnut did, where he stopped at a Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers restaurant to try and bust a world record, and busted he did, demolishing over 40 chicken fingers, 40 chicken fingers in five minutes. And apparently, Joey Chestnut is a big fan of Raising Cane's because he kept eating after the five-minute timer had stopped. I mean, he got to the five minutes that he had to break the world record. He did, and he kept going. That is... Uh, when you... Uh, <laughs> When you can uh, convince a a uh, competitive eater to continue eating your stuff, your food, just because he likes it, that's a that's an accomplishment when you really think about it. That is amazing. Forty, uh, forty-four chicken fingers in five minutes. Mm. I don't think if I ever did that that I'd ever want to eat chicken fingers again. And he kept going after the five minutes were up. That's just a. Speaking of chicken, I saw this story on the Newswire, and it left me scratching my head. A uh, North Carolina Chick-fil-A location is uh, taking some backlash after they posted on social media looking for volunteer workers. The now-deleted post on the Facebook page for the Hendersonville, North Carolina Chick-fil-A location they were asking for volunteers for their new drive through express. The post was offering volunteers five free entrees for each one hour shift that people volunteered to work. Uh, the manager of the restaurant said people in the community want to be a part of what the restaurant is doing, and it's designed to be an opportunity for that. <laughs> I think anyone who wants to be a part of what the restaurant is doing probably would want to apply for a job, a paid job there. You know, that's, they have, <laughs> the uh, the restaurant did say that they had multiple people sign up and volunteers are used to direct traffic. Uh, people going through the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A. So they're, they schedule them for, for work shifts, come in and direct traffic to the, uh, uh, to the drive-thru. They have a name for that. It's called a job. That's, uh, if you need somebody to uh, work for you, hire them. That's it. It's called a job. So we need those. <laughs> wow. Um, but then again, maybe, you know, if you won the lottery, you wouldn't need a job. You could afford to uh, volunteer uh, and, and work for free. You know, the Mega Millions jackpot is now well over a billion dollars after no one hit it uh, Tuesday night. Next drawing will be tomorrow. And uh, the old saying goes, you have to be in it to win it, but chances are that you won't. In fact, um, somebody, and I'm not sure who did this, put some of the uh, odds together for comparison. This is uh, like uh, 
the odds of winning the uh, Mega Millions jackpot, one in 303 million. So for comparison, uh, you are far more likely to be killed by a vending machine (laughs) than you are to win the Mega Millions jackpot. You're more likely to be killed by a vending machine. According uh, to the National Weather Service, your uh, odds of being struck by lightning twice (laughs) are uh, a comparative certainty uh, compared to uh, winning the jackpot. Your uh, odds of getting hit by lightning twice. Your odds of being killed by a shark uh, more likely. You're more likely to be killed by a shark than you are to win the Mega Millions. Although... Uh, you have some control over that. Your chances of being killed by a char- uh, shark are near zero if you don't go to the beach. So there is that. But um, you know what we're saying here. Uh, your odds of being killed by a vending machine stand at 1 in 112 million as compared to 1 in 303 million to win the uh, Mega Millions. Um, this is from Amram Shapiro's The Book of Odds. Uh, let's see here. Your... Chances of being struck by lightning twice are about one in nine million. So much more likely than winning the mega millions. How about this? You are more likely to end up in the emergency room thanks to a pogo stick mishap. (laughs) The odds of that are one in 175,000. That's more than 1,700 times more likely to end up in the emergency room thanks to a pogo stick mishap than holding the winning Mega Millions ticket. <laughs> um, and by the way, we talk about a billion dollars in the jackpot. You only get that if you pick the yearly annuity option. If you cash out, which most people do, uh, the cash value is $602.5 million as of right now. And that, of course, is before Uncle Sam gets his cut. So, something to keep in mind. Is it really worth uh, tempting... Tempting the odds. I mean, you're facing the odds. I know it's only a couple of bucks to buy the ticket, but you really think you've got a much better chance of ending up in the ER from a pogo stick accident. I mean, think about that. And who knows uh, anyone who's ever had that happen to them? Well, I could share a story, but anyway, there you go. Some of the uh, most interesting, something to think about as we get mega millions fever in this country here. There's uh, some of the uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather, partly sunny skies are expected today with a high of 83. It'll be partly to mostly cloudy tonight, a low of 62. Flag City Honor Flight with a big announcement. Our November 1st flight will be all Vietnam-era veterans. We are doing that to alleviate our very long waiting list of Vietnam veterans. As President Bob Weinberg said, Flag City Honor Flight's November trip this year will be all Vietnam War-era veterans. He says they decided to do this because the waiting list for Vietnam veterans is more than 400 veterans long. Flag City Honor Flight resumed trips to Washington, D.C. this year after being grounded for two years due to the pandemic. Get more on the website. Supply chain issues and worker shortages are continuing to plague auto dealers. The auto industry is dealing with a part shortage never seen before. From computer chips to engines, mechanics are finding it harder to get the right parts, making repair times even longer, from a few days to over a month. Steve Taylor of Taylor Automotive says it's not just fewer parts causing delays, but fewer mechanics to work on the cars. Uh, It's been difficult with technicians. Uh, They're definitely in demand, you know, skilled labor. Uh, Technicians across the country are in demand, not just locally in Toledo. Chase Bachman, been West Toledo. The Mega Millions lottery jackpot has ballooned to $1 billion after no one matched all six numbers to win the top prize. The estimated jackpot for Friday's drawing will be the nation's fourth largest lottery prize. The lottery has grown so large because there have been 29 consecutive drawings without anyone winning the top prize. The billion-dollar prize is for a winner who chooses the annuity option, paid annually over 30 years. But most winners opt for the cash option, which for the next drawing is an estimated $602 million. I'm Clay Gordon. Ohio State's head football coach, Ryan Day, says he understands the expectations Ohio State fans have. Day said he knows last year's 11-2 season that included a Rose Bowl win wasn't good enough. He also said he expects the Buckeyes will be improved on defense this season. 
Ohio State will open the season in the Horseshoe on Saturday night, September 3rd against Notre Dame. Remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. So now our cover story this morning. We've kind of gotten into this back-to-school vibe over the past couple of weeks, ever since our Stuff the Bus campaign. And so wanted to bring in Liberty Benton Superintendent Mark Kowalski because there's probably no district that has been busier this summer uh, than you have uh, over at, uh, at your campus uh, out there in uh, County Road 9. Things are just going absolutely like gangbusters uh, over the uh, past uh, couple of months here, especially. Well, we definitely have some movement over there. There's a lot of moving parts. <laughs> a lot of moving parts. Uh, a lot of moving parts. And... Um, um, you know, we're on a pretty good pace right now with uh, with really three or four separate projects going right. right now. Yeah. So we have the K-8 project, mm-hmm. which is slated uh, for substantial completion uh, April 30th of 2023. So that is kind of on the back burner, yeah. be that as it may. That's the biggest piece Yeah, I was going to mention that that is the, the big project, but that will not be done for the start of, of school. No, absolutely uh, not. That That is slated... Um, you know, prior to the pan, prior to the pandemic, we would have been starting this fall, and that pushed that project back a year. Uh, the pandemic with the High Facilities Construction Commission, mm-hmm. um, so and just uh, Governor Dewine suspending those operations at that time. So, but we are on a great, great schedule there. That building is actually a little bit ahead of schedule right now. We'll knock okay. on the desk here, uh, and we'll be ready to move into that. Uh, have our grand opening end of August next year and move into the the new K eight and vacate the uh, uh, State Route twelve and, and one thirty nine campus mm-hmm. uh, there. Uh, the other project is we have a stadium project going on an entryway uh, to our stadium um, in conjunction with our uh, athletic capital uh, campaign uh, for a recognition and memorial entrance to our stadium. Uh, we would like to recognize all of our donors. Uh, who who came out and supported the field house project and also the 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 baseball field project and and I know our capital um, campaign committee in our athletic boosters is going to kick off another mm-hmm. they have a big big thing going to happen on yeah. August 26 when we grand open that entrance yeah and then obviously um, um, is the renovation to the high school now that obviously will have to be done by start of school <laughs> yes. Um, Obviously, we start Tuesday, September 6th, very tight window. We went uh, online virtual for the last two weeks to... Folks to, remember yes, last year to get an early start on that. Right, to provide Gilbane uh, some added time. That's a very tight window. Gilbane is our construction manager, mm-hmm. and we have several local local um, contractors in their work working right now, Vaughn Electrical and Charles Construction and just a, just a ton of Masons uh, also in there right now so what is uh going on with with that particular part of the whole (laughs) the whole project the big picture because again that's uh, something that students and uh, staff and and parents will notice right out of the gate you know with back to school this year because that will have to be done so what is new there in the existing high school okay if you um Really, the the bulk uh, of of the high school that you're going to see is a total total um, outside site renovation. Mm-hmm. All new sidewalks. Right. It's a parking lot, total new parking lot, parking lot reconfiguration also mm-hmm. because it's going to flow in conjunction with the new with the new K eight building. So, right. um, for example, there's a, if you go by there right now, there are concrete trucks in there every day pouring. Um, I think the last total was almost a thousand yards of concrete new uh, for that project, and also the parking lot will be done the week of com- started the week of August eighth. Mm-hmm. Interior in the building, all of the uh, what I would call normal existing classrooms are receiving new lights, uh, new ceiling, paint, carpet, and furniture. That would be an existing classroom if you walked in okay. to history. Now, in, in several areas, though, Chris, we are doing reprogramming, meaning we are changing the scope of, of that. For example, the cafetorium. Uh, if you remember that cafetorium, we totally filled that in. 
and we've extended our cafeteria because our enrollment's right. up. So right. we needed that extra uh, extra seating for our cafeteria, and then mm-hmm. we are moving our library, and we're creating a big glass facade on the on the old stage because our performing arts now will take place in um, in the, the new, new K eight. Will be displaced for a year. It'll yeah. be it'll it'll well, be a little. I was going <laughs> to ask uh, since that building will not be ready uh, for this academic year. What will the performing arts uh, do in the meantime? We'll have to. Uh, you know, I could see our 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 concerts taking place in our middle school gym. Okay. For this year, um, I know um, um, Mr. Wolf, who runs our our musical. Uh, looks like we could be going to Marathon Performing Arts this year. Okay, uh, for that Gateway has another. been a Gateway uh, Church has been a great partner for us. Uh, we do have a concert there, and I'm sure we'll continue to partner with them this year. Okay. It will be an inconvenience this year, right. but right. the end result will be worthwhile for decades. In fact, for us, yeah. There's uh, there are some uh, images, uh, videos, and, yes. and images. We did uh, post that inside the uh, construction of the new building, and you can see uh, just how nice that performing arts uh, center is going to be uh, in the new building. Yes, as uh, an example, well, really the entire yeah, building. Yeah, last week uh, uh, a student who graduated. And I'm going to give him some props here, Andrew Thomas. Uh, uh, and I walked both of those facilities, and he put together a interior video uh, of the high school renovation and the uh, K eight as it's as it's moving moving along. Mm. Um, you know, right now uh, we are hoping that we are back in our offices, meaning the board office mm-hmm. and the high school office, the week of August twenty second, because Gilbane will have a cleaning crew in behind, and our teachers are back. August 29th. So I know yeah, that's uh, a lot of things come together in the last right. two weeks. You know, sometimes it's easier to build new than, than it is to remodel a house. And uh, we've worked through. And you're actually things. doing both. Uh, and we at the, are at the same, at the same time. time. Uh, and notwithstanding, the county obviously has County Road 9 closed. Right. From the top. Uh, and uh, talking to their deputy uh, engineer yesterday, Kyle Parker, looks like substantial completion. It will be open August 24th. So we're pushing okay. it right up to. You know, our events. it is uh, worth pointing out that we talk about this uh, from the perspective of back to school when the students get back uh, after the fair, after mm-hmm. Labor Day. But you actually need to have access and need to have uh, stuff done in advance of that so that teachers can get in, so that administrators can get in, so that, you know, uh, everybody can get in to get ready for that first day of school. So, yeah, we really need to be in there. Um, you know, like I said, our, our OK, for example. Our elementary is pretty much ready to go clean because we moved our entire custodial crew there. Yeah, we already have teach elementary teachers <laughs> clean coming within in. an inch of his life. <laughs> they're already been over there. They're already prepared. <laughs> yeah, everybody. They're working around everybody because our board office is there in in the middle school this summer. Yeah, and uh, they're displaced. But uh, you know, we already have elementary teachers coming in to get their rooms ready. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are we are hoping, like I said, the week of the twenty second. You know, we have to move every uh, thing. Copiers network. We need our network up and running. Yeah. So we can so image all laptops and, yeah. and everything that we need for the for the startups. A lot of things that are going to be <laughs> going on uh, between now and then. So for uh, K through eight students, not really a big no. change. For high school students, the renovation. We were talking about some of the renovations at the high school. Uh, are there are there classrooms that are going to uh, move? Uh, things that are going to be different locations, maybe than what they've been at the past. And absolutely, our choir know? room will be relocated to okay. behind the old. We're going to call it the old stage, as people know that. Okay, uh, we've added about uh, about eight different learning new learning spaces. Okay, additional learning spaces. Which, if you go by the school on State Route 12, we had to add another egress um, um, to State Route 12. So we've added additional learning learning spaces uh, to meet, you know, our population from when the high school was built. Right. And, and it was open in 95, 96. It's a little bit different than it was now. We're mm-hmm. over, you know, 125 kids more. Right. And uh, we anticipate that number to go up a little bit here with some of our classes coming so through. So some of the things that uh, parents and students will want to uh, be aware of heading into the new year, that there may be new locations of classrooms. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, things uh, different. Uh, when so they head we're to, hoping, head to class. we're hoping, I know, um, we're hoping for an um, 
on, I'm sorry, August 30th. Mm-hmm. We're hoping for, you know, to be able for everyone to walk through uh, that day and, and, and do an open house, if you will, meet the teacher there. And for, well, the 10, 10 even the 10, 11, 12 yeah. graders who've been in the building a year are going right. to have some relocation. Have, yeah, it's yes. going to be like a, like a new uh, experience. Absolutely. So Absolutely. Definitely something to put on your uh, radar screen before so uh, I'll have an update for you in a couple weeks. <laughs> okay. Very good. Uh, again, uh, Liberty Benton Superintendent Mark Kowalski with us this morning. An update on the uh, very busy summer of construction out there on uh, County Road 9. Thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate As it. As always, thanks, Chris. Well, the headline in the Washington Post this week screams Yellowstone and other national parks come face-to-face with climate change as wildfires tear through Yosemite and flooding and rock, si- rock slides, mudslides within Yellowstone shut down parts of uh, that park last month. Tourism officials say don't cancel your plans just yet. Jenny Pillay is the division administrator of the Office of Tourism for Visit Montana. And Jenny... Has Yellowstone now completely reopened after last month's uh, flooding and record rainfall and all of that mess? Yeah, uh, the majority of the park is open. Um, our roads are repaired. The water levels are back to normal. Um, the Park Service has done an incredible job of getting the park back open for visitors. At this point, 93% of the roadways in the park are open. 94% of the backcountry is open. And so are all of our gateway communities. So terrific news. What what can travelers expect when visiting the park this year? Are there any lingering effects or, or things that people will want to know? You know, overall, the, the number one thing is if you're planning to visit the park this summer, still do it. Uh, you can enjoy Yellowstone in, in the ways that you normally would with all of the entrances open, um, including West Yellowstone here in Montana, which is a popular, popular entrance point, with the exception of just one. And that's the northern entrance um, out of Gardner here in Montana. Um, but it's only closed to vehicle travel at this point. They're offering a really cool experience for people that they can actually walk in or bike into the park from Gardner, which is something that is totally unique and um, offers the opportunity to experience the park and absorb it in a magical way, without crowds and without traffic. So actually taking that and, and turning it into something maybe of a uh, positive I- experience. And this is a big deal because obviously Yellowstone is so critical to the state's tourism industry as a whole. What would an extended closure have meant to the state economically? Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, in overall, the parks are a piece of tourism in Montana. There's so much else to do and see here. Um, it's definitely a big draw. Uh, the majority of people who come to Montana come to the parks for their first visit mm-hmm. and then see how much more there is to experience here with our charming small towns. They want to spend more time in the gateway communities like Gardner. And so they plan a second trip to come back. And this is the year to take the opportunity to experience it more like a local. Spend that time in Gardner. Um you know, having closures in the park definitely impacts these gateway communities mm-hmm. that, um, you know, visitors pass through and, and stay in when they go in the park. So we're really happy to know that so much of the park is open and we're seeing people locally, seeing people from out of state come back and enjoy it. As you point out, uh, all of the things that people love about the park don't stop at the borders of the park. So talk a little bit about how else uh, tourism or tourists can can experience Montana's wide open spaces. I mean, again, we think of Montana, big sky country, and those wide open spaces, and that is something that truly has to be experienced. For sure, yeah. I mean, with all the wide open spaces, there are small towns, charming towns to base camp out of to to root yourself in adventure. Um, you know, I as a local don't actually spend my time in the park in the summer. I tend to go in the winter because there's so much else to do outside of the park that's just as amazing. So, you know, like some of the things I like to do is um, play on our rivers. I'm a whitewater rafter. I'm a fly angler. Um, There's, you know, you can go to Ennis and experience the upper Madison and fly fish. And if you don't have the resources or the know-how, you can always um, hook up with a guide and outfitter to, to show you the ropes. Um, if you're more into land-based activities, 
there's mountain biking, there's plenty of hiking. Um, if you'd rather drive the state and see for yourself how beautiful it is, we have plenty of scenic drives to enjoy. Um, we're really excited that the Beartooth Highway, Beartooth Pass is open. It had sustained some damage during the flooding too, but that's outside of Red Lodge, which is an, an amazing, charming small town. Um, and that drive itself is dubbed the most scenic drive in America. So we encourage people to come and experience it for themselves. You uh, also touched on something that I think is is worth pointing out. Uh, a lot of people think of uh, visiting national parks, particularly Yellow, uh, Yellowstone, in the uh, in the summertime. But it is you know four seasons of beauty that's uh, they're all, all different. Uh, you were talking about the winter time is a great time to explore the park and, and see things that are completely different. I would imagine autumn uh, in the fall is absolutely gorgeous. So uh, even as we're coming up on the tail end of summer, don't write off a, a visit to Yellowstone just because it's not summertime. Definitely. Yeah. Um, there's not a, there's not a bad time to come visit Montana. Um, the fall is a great time. Traditionally, that's a time where, you know, a lot of families are back to school. So, you know, we, we generally get about 12 million people coming to our state in the summer. So shoulder season's still beautiful. It's still warm. The days are still long. And, um, and oftentimes it's less crowded. As we uh, mentioned at the outset, this has been a summer of extremes across much of the country, and that has some folks saying that you know these are the effects of climate change coming back to uh, to bite us here. Given that um, Montana, especially Yellowstone in particular, but Montana in general, uh, the tourism relies so much on outdoor spaces and rediscovering nature and so on. How concerning would it be if this turns out to be more than just an anomaly this summer of 2022? You know, I think part of the dynamic with tourism as being such a driving economic force is that it's vulnerable to a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, it was vulnerable to the pandemic. It's vulnerable to weather events. And so, you know, what we're looking at is how do we become resilient in uncontrollable circumstances? Yeah. How do we prepare for changes? to make sure that we can maintain this driver and maintain a great experience for people. The reason I bring it up is because sometimes I think it's lost in the debate uh, over climate change and what to do about it. On the one hand, we talk about the negative impacts potentially on the economy if we uh, do too much, but there's also uh, an impact to the economy if we do too little. Uh, and, and here is a perfect example of that. So really it demonstrates why a balanced approach to this uh, is needed. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's, it's so, we're so thankful that the park service was able to respond, able to make these repairs, open up the park again. These communities were able to open up again. There's a lot of family owned businesses that are reliant on, on these windows of time and visitors coming. So yeah. Um, thank you for helping us spread the word that we're open and uh, come visit. Jenny Pillay is the uh, division administrator of the Office of Tourism for Visit Montana. And that's uh, the website, right, where folks can get more information about all there is to see and do out there in uh, big sky country, right? Yeah, Visitmt.com is where you want to go. We'll link up to it on our webpage as well. Jenny, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you as well. Have a good day. Our Throwback Thursday segment this morning also deals with the issue of climate change. This summer of extremes that we have endured is some pointing to climate change as the cause, that this is the early manifestation of years of warnings and that we can no longer afford to wait to address it. Well, back in 2016, the American College of Physicians raised some eyebrows with a report on the connection between climate change and public health. At the time, we spoke with Dr. Wayne Riley of the American College of Physicians about that report from April of 2016. It is today's Throwback Thursday. What are you saying in this report? We are saying as the nation's uh, internal medicine specialists and subspecialists, uh, as uh, the uh, American College of Physicians, that climate change and health are an important dimension that oftentimes is not recognized. Uh, this paper clearly delineates 
that climate change is more than just an economic, environmental, or political issue. It is indeed a public health issue and an individual health issue that we must begin to address. Well, and you just said it yourself, this is very much a political issue, and there are many who see this as strictly that, that the whole idea of climate change brought on by human activity is nothing more than a scare tactic designed to advance a specific political agenda. So explain how you connect the dots between climate change and public health. Great. Well, let's start with the increased prevalence and incidence of vector-borne diseases, uh, case in point, uh, is Zika virus. Zika is a virus transmitted by the Aedes aegypti mosquito. The thing that makes this mosquito happiest is warm weather. So obviously, as the uh, climate changes and becomes warmer, even in areas that traditionally have not been what we think is warm, uh, that, are, are, that is the precondition under which Aedes aegypti mosquitoes proliferate. So again, warming climate leads to uh, vectors, uh, i.e. mosquitoes, other things such as tick-borne diseases because ticks love warm weather too. Mm -hmm. This is all a connection back to the warming climate. Even beyond this, there's respiratory illnesses, uh, there's behavioral health problems, there's heat stroke and heat-related illnesses that we think uh, people underestimate the degree to which uh, global warming and climate change are really uh, significant contributors. To what extent is that? I mean, is there a number that you can uh, that you can place on that? I mean, the extent to which climate change contributes to this? Because I can hear a lot of people saying, I'm wondering about the difference between correlation and causation. I mean, to what extent is this part of the issue? Well, again, you know, as a physician, uh, I listen to those debates, and you know, they're fairly what I could consider academic debates. But when you have a patient uh, before you who has clear signs and symptoms of a disease that was likely the result of, uh, you know, significant changes in climate around the world, uh, you know, it, 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 uh, it strikes me as, as pretty compelling. And you use the word likely the result of climate change. So with that in mind, what do we do about it? Well, again, you know, this is from sort a of public, a call to from action. A public, that, from a public health standpoint, oh, what sure, can we yeah. do about it? From a public health standpoint is obviously uh, be aware. Uh, the first rule of public health is to educate the public about health issues. And so that's the vein in which this paper was, uh, was drafted and presented. We're raising consciousness uh, that, uh, you know, these illnesses that we worry about that are in the news, um, you know, are a direct result in many cases of our warming climate uh, and that we must as individuals and collectively begin to uh, address um, additionally, you know, those of us in the healthcare sector, we are the second highest producer, excuse me, user rather, of energy, second only to the food industry. Uh, we have to do a better job of becoming more environmentally sound, embracing of um, environmental practices that decrease carbon emissions, greenhouse gases that we're using recycled materials, we're designing hospitals and healthcare facilities uh, to be more energy efficient, etc. So... The bottom line here from this report, what you're talking about is the broader implication on climate change and public health that you say is going overlooked. Absolutely. Our strong recommendation is that we just not think about global warming and climate change as just an economic, uh, political, or environmental issue. It is indeed a public health issue. And as the nation's uh, leading physician, uh, that's where we come down on the side of science and the sound of, of, of good uh, prognostications about how diseases will spread. Uh, that's our job as physicians, to try to figure out and anticipate where there are going to be health problems. And, uh, again, we know that if we don't begin to aggressively uh, address climate change, that we're likely to see outbreak after outbreak, uh, proliferation of vectors and mosquitoes, proliferation of waterborne diseases, problem with our food security uh, around the world, and problems with heat-related uh, illnesses and uh, behavioral health problems. Again, our conversation with Dr. Wayne Riley of the American College of Physicians from back in April of 2016 about a new report that, incidentally, they are still uh, using uh, today uh, here 
what five six late six years later uh as part of their climate change toolkit in the american college of physicians talking about addressing this as a public health issue it is today's throwback thursday you can learn more about the uh, report we've got it linked up at our webpage goodmornings.net we interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. <laughs> I, I love this. Um, just a case of uh, mistaken, ide- <laughs> mistaken identity. Um, somebody who just didn't think something through. Have you ever had that happen? You say, A uh, North Carolina woman, intent on revenge, uh, set fire to the wrong house, according to (laughs) sheriff's office in Rowan County, North Carolina. Woman was allegedly trying to set her ex-boyfriend's house on fire, but appears to have gotten the address wrong. (laughs) The the real homeowner was actually alerted by a neighbor that someone was outside uh, setting some wood on fire near a propane tank and uh <laughs> confronted the woman with a with a rifle so <laughs> homeowner I, I mean think about this you're just sitting in your house minding your own business when a neighbor calls and says hey do you realize there's a woman out in out front of your house lighting some wood on fire near a propane tank you might want to check this out so he, he grabs a rifle <laughs> runs out to confront the woman uh Apparently, she mumbled something and then ran ran off before law enforcement uh, arrived. Deputies, though, soon pieced the whole thing together and arrested the woman on felony first-degree arson, among other charges. Turns out she was trying to set her ex-boyfriend's house on fire. She knew he lived in the neighborhood, but she got the address wrong. So. <laughs> That's embarrassing. Haven't we all done that, though? I mean, well, maybe not when you're trying to burn someone's house down, but, you know, gotten the address wrong and so you can understand the confusion. It happens. Sometimes. Certainly empathize. <laughs> uh, second item here in the uh, broken news this morning. A 79-year-old Indiana man could be facing prison time after allegedly destroying four vehicles at two automobile dealerships. Four cars at uh, two different dealerships. Dewey Frederick claims that he bought a lemon from a car dealer in Fort Wayne back in 1986. (laughs) And earlier this month, he finally decided to get his revenge. The uh, affidavit for the arrest claims that uh, Mr. Frederick set an SUV on fire. The fire then spread to two other vehicles. He then drove to another dealership and dropped a lit road flare onto a convertible uh, at that dealership. Uh, Mr. Frederick, charged with felony arson, could spend up to 48 years in prison. He's 79 years old. You would think that you would know better by that time. He was still holding a grudge over a lemon that he bought in 1986. (laughs) Wow. Some people can really hold a grudge, I guess. There's the (laughs) story of a uh, Greenwood, Pennsylvania woman by the name of Christine Meadows. Greenberg, Pennsylvania. Ms. Meadows will not be winning any awards for Mother of the Year. Apparently, she is uh, now accused of selling her teenage daughter's medication and her urine. Uh... Ms. Meadows' daughter was in foster care and had her mother's phone when the foster parents noticed some suspicious text messages. Police say Ms. Meadows was involved in a prostitution ring. Uh, She was already jailed for allegedly selling her daughter's Adderall pills and then forcing her daughter to pee into containers to sell the clean urine. People who wanted to pass like this. Not the mother of the year. Not. She is out of the running. Mother of the year. Man. How many ways can we get 
ourselves into trouble with her daughter. I mean, that's... A uh, man facing charges in Portland, Oregon, after allegedly taking a dog from a car and asking for ransom money. This dog napper, not the brightest bulb in the pack. According to police, a dog was taken from a car as the owner was inside a business. Um, apparently, the, well... You know, set aside for a moment the idea of leaving the dog in the car while you go in and you know run inside of a business. So that's not a. And I, so one could argue that it's kind of asking for, but uh, nonetheless, the owner uh, came out. Dog was gone. Uh, owner was contacted the next day, and the suspect on the phone said that they would return the dog for one hundred dollars. <laughs> the plan was to meet to exchange the dog and the money, and of course. Police were in on it, arrived at the location, and arrested the man. Not the smartest dog napper in the world. A hundred bucks. That's what it... That's an awful lot of trouble to go through for a hundred dollars. You know what I mean? That's that's kind of weird. And finally, in the uh, broken news this morning, if you thought that you could only be arrested for DUI on the roadways, uh, on, a, on a road, on a highway, on a street, public street. Think again. A Florida man has demonstrated that you can actually be charged with DUI inside of a retail establishment. An unnamed 39-year-old man from Melbourne, Florida, went on a joyride on one of Walmart's motorized scooters... <laughs> As he was cruising down the aisles, eyewitnesses say he had an open bottle of Smirnoff bouncing along in the basket. (laughs) But as happens when you are too drunk to drive, the man was completely unable to control the scooter, so he wound up crashing it into various shelves, nearly fell off the scooter several times. Fortunately, nobody was hurt. Police were called after the man nearly plowed into some shoppers. As they... uh, As they detained him by distracting him, they noticed uh, he had glassy eyes and uh, smelled of alcohol. When police arrived and asked the man to hand over his ID, he apparently slumped down and passed out on the scooter. (laughs) Because he also refused to take a breathalyzer, he was taken into custody. The man was charged with DUI, disorderly intoxication, possession of an open container, and refusal to cooperate with authorities. <laughs> Actually get charged with DUI and open container for riding a scooter in the aisles of Walmart. Now that takes some that takes some doing right there. I mean you really have to work at it to get charged with those things inside a retail store. There you go. Uh, that is today's Broken News Report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. It's the WFIN Virtual Car Show. Get them out, shine them up, and upload a pic of your classic, and we'll post it to WFIN.com for everybody to see. In addition, we'll have an online car show calendar so that you know when and where all the area shows are. It's chrome and horsepower on display online. The WFIN Virtual Car Show and Calendar. Thanks to Details Auto Spot, Loritz Chevrolet Cadillac, and 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. At what age do parents give their children their first phone? Uh, And does it have to be a smartphone? This is really interesting. And uh, this latest survey of uh, 2,000 parents of school-aged children found that the average kid will get their first phone at the age of 10 Now, that's interesting because a few years ago, uh, when when cell phones first became as ubiquitous as they as they are now, when, you know, it started to become the point where everybody had a smart everybody had a cell phone before smartphones. Everybody had a cell phone. Um, Most parents 
would say right around the teenage years, uh, if not waiting until high school. Uh, so years ago, you used to be, oh, kids don't need a cell phone until they get into high school, or at least until they're a teenager. But now it's 10 years old. Uh, it is kind of interesting. The average parent, today's parent, says they were 11 when they got their their first piece of personal technology, but more often it was uh, like a laptop or even a desktop computer back in the day. Seven in 10 of today's parents, 70% say that they trust their kids with technology, even though two-thirds have put parental controls on all of their children's devices for added security. 62% believe that technology is beneficial for kids' social skills, which is kind of interesting because there's a lot of studies that show just the opposite. Parents say they decided to give their youngsters a phone to use for emergency purposes, the primary reason, 55%. Uh, 47% said uh, it helps them gain technology skills for their future work or career. And uh, also, 46% say that their kids got a phone because they showed the maturity to own one. This was a a one-poll survey on behalf of Cricket Wireless, by the way. Also finds that two-thirds, 67% of parents believe their kids will have access to tech no matter how strict they are. Uh, Half the poll, uh, half of those in the poll have purchased or considering getting their kids a non-smartphone with the goal of helping them to avoid the distraction of apps um, and just, you know, focusing on the basic features of calling and texting. That's really all they need a phone for, so... Uh, about two-thirds of parents say that's probably the better option than a smartphone. So kind of interesting that kids getting their first phone at the age of 10, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a smartphone. And maybe this is a sign of the times. In this poll, nearly 6 in 10, 59% of parents say that they often text their kids to come downstairs for dinner instead of actually talking to them. <laughs> It's just easier. We just text our kids rather than yelling up the stairs to their bedroom. Hey, dinner's ready. Just text them. It's easy. <laughs> Side of the times. Kind of funny here, too. The uh, poll also quizzed kids between the ages of 6 and 18 on their knowledge of older technology. When presented with images of old gadgets, almost half were unable to identify a landline. Almost half of kids, 49% between the kids between ages of 6 and 18, were unable to identify a landline phone. Wow, how quickly things change. And only 26% were able to name and explain how to use an answering machine. <laughs> Well, I guess you talk about ancient technology with uh, automated digital voicemail. Now, we don't need answering machines anymore. I don't remember the last time we actually had an answering machine connected to a landline. Kids' heads explode if they were to see something like that. So, happening around town, the next production... The Fort Finley Playhouse will be the premiere of a Jim Toth original called Blood Moon Memories. Jim is with us in the studio this morning, along with uh, Kendra Rother, uh, one of the uh, folks who's in uh, actually in the production. Jim, how many plays have you written uh, for the Playhouse? For the Playhouse, this is the second uh, play okay. that we've done originally at the Playhouse. I've written several uh, murder mystery dinner theaters that we've done downtown. Oh, okay, and, uh, all right, around the area. How did you? How did you get into the writing in general? This kind of writing in particular. Um, this this one was sort of a revelation. I had decided that I was going to write a play, um, an autobiographical sort of show about my life as a child. Okay. In the small town of North Baltimore, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's going to make it like our town, sort of a, a, a happy-go-lucky reminiscence piece. Uh, however, in the middle of the writing, the play took a dark and and, and somewhat evil turn, <laughs> and where my 
my non-fictional play became a very fictional play. So, and, and that's interesting you say that because I know when we talk with uh, authors uh, on the show, you know, in the traditional, you know, writers and novels and, and so on, whether it's a local author or even a well-known best-selling author that we've had on the uh, on the show, invariably they will say that the story kind of takes on a life of its own or it goes in a direction that you don't always expect oh, when you, you lay things out uh, in it, your it mind. It does indeed. I, uh, I, have, I have often written something mm-hmm. in the middle of the night um, <laughs> and woke up the next day and said, wait, did I write that? <laughs> <laughs> and that's what happened on this play. It, yeah. it, it, it took over. So to get, so give us kind of a, a brief synopsis uh, sure. of this. Um, basically, it's the story of my life as an 11-year-old boy mm-hmm. growing up in a small town. Um, and um, it's 1958. Okay. And it's the little Tim's birthday party. He's 11 years old, and everything is happy and wonderful, and then suddenly a tragic event occurs, which changes his life forever. Hmm. Um, so, Kendra, you are actually in the production? I am. I am playing um, Ellen Janney, who is actually in, it's Jim's mother. Okay. So I get to play his mother in this show. What is it? And as we mentioned, this is a premiere. This is the first time this has been uh, performed. So you are actually kind of originating this role. A world premiere. I am. Originating the role. Yeah. How how do you go about that? I mean, as opposed to playing a role that has been fleshed out before where you have some idea of. So this one was a little bit easier for me because I've known Jim almost all of my life. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's very easy to put his mother's personality into my character just because I know him. Yeah. So I've been able to to kind of cheat a little bit, and I had a <laughs> yeah, I had kind of a head start over my my co my co star David, who is playing um, Big Brad, who is Jim's father. Yeah. So when you write the, uh, a show like this, do you have certain actors in mind? Uh, given that, I mean, I know you've been involved with the Playhouse for yeah. eons, and you know everybody who's a part of the ensemble. And when, you... when I write, I don't even know for sure who all the characters are going to be until it's all done. Mm-hmm. So, no, I don't uh, have an idea. Once it's written, however, I can visualize certain yeah. people who I work with. I, I'm wondering because, you know, you talk about, the the central character based on yourself as as being an 11 year old that's a very specific uh that's a very specific role it's not something that just anyone can pick up right we have a a young boy named dean cameron who Mm -hmm. is absolutely phenomenal as little tim yeah Uh, my my character as a young boy Mm -hmm. and he's really good yeah, he's fantastic. Uh, so the show actually opens next month, right? Give us all of the uh, details. The dates uh, uh, for the performances. It opens on August 12th okay. and runs the 13th and the 14th. And then the following weekend on the 20th and the 21st, there's five performances. Okay. Uh, tickets actually go on sale on Monday, the do they not? August yes. 1st. Uh, mm-hmm. On Monday. And uh, this is, uh, as you mentioned, the this is a second stage uh, production. Correct. Right. Right. Uh, at, the, right. Uh, at the Playhouse. Right. Um, we've got a link up to it at our webpage if folks want to learn more uh, about it. One of the things we always talk about when we have uh, you folks in from the uh, Fort Finley Playhouse is this is a true community theater and always looking for more folks. Obviously, this show has been cast and, you know, you've got uh, things in the works for this particular show, but the season has only just started. Well, we can always use help. Uh, even on this show, we can use help backstage uh uh, and all the shows are looking for people to help from the community. So anyone's welcome to come down to the Fort Finney Playhouse and volunteer. And uh, some of the upcoming shows uh, that are still ahead uh, in the uh, season? The Savannah Sipping Society is coming up next. That's a fun one if anybody's ever known um, the writings of, what is it, Wooten? 
Jones, Wooten, and yeah, I don't. <laughs> right, right, right. They've <laughs> done the Dixie Swim Club. And We've this done is several one of their, of their shows. Okay, yeah. all right. And uh, I know you got a, a couple of uh, musicals coming up. We do. We have Elf coming up in um, December, and then Mary Poppins will be in April. Yeah. This one being a world premiere has never been done before, right. but all of the shows this year are ones that have not been done at the Playhouse before. I that is understand. correct. Yeah, it's that was a very deliberate brand new to us. Very deliberate thing. So a uh, great year to get involved. Uh, and if you if you like tickets to uh, Blood Moon Memories, uh, we've got the, uh, again, tickets go on sale on Monday. We've got the uh, link up at our webpage. You want to get involved with the uh, Fort uh, Findlay Playhouse. Uh, more details on the website as well. And again, uh, Jim Toth and uh, Kendra Rother uh, with us this morning. Thanks very much for dropping by. Certainly Thank best you. of luck with, the, uh, so with the premiere. And with that, we will wrap up another edition of the podcast this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage, and that is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, Senator Rob Portman will join us. We'll talk about the long overdue settlement on the CHIPS Act and the huge economic impact that will have for Ohio and the country as a whole. Plus, is China trying to undermine U.S. monetary policy through illegal tampering with the Federal Reserve? So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out, make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.